Hello and welcome to the latest DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. My name is Martin Holmes, Partner and Head of Market Strategy for Property in the Claim Solutions Group of DAC Beechcroft. In this episode, Dan Abbey, a partner in our Property Coverage and Liability team, discusses the issue of fair presentation and how it is dealt with in both the Consumer Insurance Disclosure and Representations Act 2012 and the Insurance Act 2015. Hi everyone, I'm Dan Abbey. I'm a partner in DACB's Complex Property Team. The title of this talk is Fair Presentation, Where Are We Now? And you'll gather from that that I'm going to be focusing on the two acts that came out of the Law Commission's Review of Insurance Law. The Consumer Insurance Disclosure and Representations Act 2012 and the Insurance Act 2015. And in particular, the issue of fair presentation or the duty of utmost good faith as it used to be known, how it's dealt with in those acts and since they came into force, how it's been dealt with in the market and in the case law. So let's quickly recap the main changes to the law. Prior to the acts coming into force, both non-disclosures and misrepresentations allowed avoidance as long as they were material. Under the Marine Insurance Act and the seminal case of Pan Atlantic versus Pine Top, there was a two-stage test. First, were the actual underwriters induced by the non-disclosures or misreps? That is to say, had they known the true position, would they have not written the risk or written it on different terms? And that was assessed by witness evidence. And second, would the true position have changed a prudent underwriter's estimation of the risk? That is to say, a question of materiality, which would be assessed by expert underwriting evidence. And crucially, even innocent misreps and non-disclosures allowed avoidance of the entire policy, i.e. a retrospective cancellation of the policy back to inception or the relevant renewal, regardless of the line of business in question, uh, compulsory motor risks aside, which I'm not covering today. Well, we now have a two-speed regime split between commercial lines and personal lines. Personal lines are now regulated by the uh, Consumer Insurance Disclosure and Representations Act 2012, bit of a mouthful, and so everyone just refers to it as CEDRA. It only applies to consumer insurances, and really what it did was to bring the law in line with the FOS's approach. So, number one, non-disclosures are completely out. You can only rely on misreps, that is, answers to questions and specific representations. Number two, it applies proportionate remedies as with the Insurance Act that we'll look at in a moment. Number three, it's all about inducement, i.e. whether a clear question was asked and whether the answer to that induced underwriters, i.e. issues of materiality have almost completely fallen away. And in particular, number four, the duty is on the insured to take reasonable care not to make a misrep. And there are a range of factors there that have to be considered for each insured on each case as to whether they were careless enough for a remedy to apply. For example, their age, capability, sophistication, warnings given to them pre-sale, explanatory literature, 
and in particular taking into account the mode or modes via which the policy was proposed and written. On commercial lines, the main change has been to the remedies available to insurers, just as under CEDRA. So under the Insurance Act, proportionate remedies now apply on a sliding scale, depending on the culpability of the policyholder in making the misrep and non-disclosure. And for innocent misreps, there's no remedy at all. Uh, at the other end of the scale, reckless and deliberate misreps still allow avoidance. So how then have the markets and courts reacted to these acts in the nine and six years since they came into force? I'm going to go through the reaction to the Insurance Act first. Interestingly, the main development on the Insurance Act has really been a market reaction rather than a legal one. And it's where the non-disclosure or misrep is neither innocent or reckless deliberate, which is known as careless or in the FOS inadvertent. And the vast majority of non-disclosures and misreps fall into this category. Now, the Act basically says the remedy depends on what underwriters would have done had they known the true position, depending uh, on the culpability of the insured in making the misrep or non-disclosure. So, if the insured was deliberate or reckless, you can avoid the policy come what may. But if they were innocent, for example, an unclear question was asked, or the relevant event was so long ago no one would be expected to disclose it, the insurer has no remedy whatsoever. But if they were merely careless, that is, somewhere between innocent and reckless, you can only avoid if underwriters wouldn't have provided the policy in question. So if underwriters would have written the policy, but on different terms, avoidance is out of the question. But the claim might still be declined or part paid, depending on the underwriting outcome. So if underwriters would have doubled the premium, say, then only 50% of the claim has to be paid on the basis that only 50% of the premium has been received. Now. In my experience, it's only on first-party losses that general insurers are showing much of an appetite to impose part payment of claims. And even then, there's often some kind of assessment of, well, how much premium have we actually been done out of here? If, for example, it's only a few hundred pounds on an SME policy, there might well be no real appetite to underpay a claim by hundreds of thousands of pounds, for example. In particular, on third-party risks, there's a real change. And I should say that includes EL. Don't make the mistake that the compulsory insurance regs prevent this kind of thing. They don't. So on ELPL matters then, in my experience, the difficult practicalities of applying part payments to an overall settlement or judgment mean that in almost all cases, general insurers are instead simply seeking reimbursement of the outstanding premium as a gateway requirement to dealing with the claim. That issue aside, uh, not much has really changed in this area of the law since the Insurance Act came into force, and that's because cases on the Act have been pretty few and far between, and up until recently had only really looked at the Act in passing.
So in 2019, uh, we had an Atixis v. Marex and MCAP, a Lloyd syndicate, which is really no authority at all. And that's because on the, on the day that underwriters were called to give their oral evidence, the insurer reached a confidential settlement uh, with uh, Marex. And the part of the proceedings that would have brought the uh, Insurance Act into focus fell away. The following year, uh, the Scottish Court of Session fully heard an appeal in the case of Young versus RSA in 2020, but nothing new emerged from that. The case concerned issues of waiver, which the insured contended arose from underwriters asking limited questions on a particular issue prior to placement, i.e. by not asking about related issues, the insured said they waived the right to disclosure on those related issues. Uh, But importantly, for our purposes, the court explicitly proceeded on the basis of pre-act authorities on waiver, which it held remained good law. More recently, the commercial court refused an insured's application for summary judgment on an avoidance issue in Kiergaard v. MS Amlin 2021. That's not a really surprising result because the issue in dispute was inducement, i.e. whether the underwriter had been induced by the non-disclosure to enter into the policy as, as we've looked at. And that's always going to be a question of fact revolving around witness evidence. So it simply isn't suitable uh, for summary judgment because of how summary judgment works. And so again, that dispute didn't truly concern the interpretation and application of the Act's provisions. And moreover, the requirement of inducement is, of course, a pre-existing component under the old regime. Now, since then, we've had Berkshire Assets versus AXA 2021, which is clearly the most important authority on the Act to date. But again, there's nothing that's particularly new in it in terms of how things stood uh, as against the old law. Berkshire failed to disclose the fact that one of its directors, Mr Sherwood, was the subject of criminal charges filed in August 2019 in Malaysia. Now, ultimately, the proceedings against Mr Sherwood were discontinued in October 2020. But AXA argued that had it been made aware of the charges themselves, it would not have agreed to insure Berkshire and therefore that it was entitled to avoid the policies. The court heard evidence from a number of witnesses, including Mr Sherwood and the underwriters at AXA who'd been involved in the writing of the risk, and evidence was given by expert underwriters. There were two issues for the court to consider. Number one, were the charges against Mr Sherwood material, the materiality test for the purposes of the duty of fair presentation? And number two, if they were and had they been disclosed, would AXA have agreed to insure Berkshire, i.e. did AXA pass the inducement test? On materiality, uh, the court considered the definition of a material circumstance under Section 7.3 of the Act. And that really codifies uh, the law as it previously stood, namely that a circumstance is material if it would influence the judgment of a prudent insurer in determining whether to take the risk and if so, on what terms. 
And the court agreed with AXA that the principles relevant to material circumstances were already well established prior to the Act, and so there was no reason to suggest the Act had changed those principles. And in considering materiality, the court found that being charged with a criminal offence will often constitute a material circumstance in the light of those previous authorities. And crucially, at the time that such facts are to be considered is at the time of the relevant inception or renewal and not with the benefit of hindsight. And therefore, importantly, the fact that the charges were dismissed was ultimately irrelevant. As to inducement, it was common ground between the parties that AXA's branch office had no authority to write the risk, and that was because of an internal practice note that had been disclosed. The court found there was no reason to suppose that the regional or London offices of the underwriters would have considered the matter any differently if the charges had been disclosed, and nor was there any reason Uh, to conclude that the conclusions of the underwriting team would have been any different. So, ultimately, AXA was successful in avoiding the policy as it managed to persuade the court on its arguments on both materiality and inducement. There are a number of key takeaway points. Uh, Number one, the law Uh, as per the authorities on materiality predating the Act, remain applicable. Number two, there's no settled definition of moral hazard. Uh, The court should consider the statutory definition of material circumstances as per the Insurance Act, however, uh, but those uh, really feed into the uh, pre-existing case law. Number three, criminal charges will often but not always be considered material to a risk. Number four, the relevant knowledge of the underwriter is that which is known at the time of its decision to accept the risk. Here's a really important one. Number five, underwriting guidelines or practice notes which endorse the approach taken will be persuasive to the court's consideration of inducement. So you always need to be considering those early on when you're thinking about whether you have a a fair presentation case or not. And finally, the selection of appropriate experts remains as important as ever in commercial lines cases. Uh, And in this case, Berkshire's expert evidence was dismissed because its expert had insufficient expertise in the relevant field uh, of insurance in question. So overall then, there's a notably absent body of new case law on the Act. We just haven't seen the deluge of case law that many were certain would materialise once the Act came into force. One has to wonder, you know, is that a coincidence or is there something more going on? Well, my suspicion is it's the latter. My gut feel uh, is that insurers are generally treading more carefully in the wake of the reforms to uh, the area of law in question and really are treading more carefully uh, given that it's a a more of a pro-insured regime. So uh, turning then to CEDRA, it probably won't surprise you to hear that there hasn't been any case law at all on that act in the nine years since it came into force. And that's surely because consumer policyholders always go to the FOS 
uh, instead of going to the courts first, given that it's free of charge for them to do so, and arguably a more favourable forum for them. And if they lose there, in most cases, they'll then think that their chances in court aren't going to be any better. Now, the FOS do publish their decisions and guidance on them, but again, there's not actually too much that's new there, and those decisions aren't binding for later FOS cases in the way that they are in court. It wouldn't be unfair to say that one day one adjudicator might decide one thing, and another day on similar facts another adjudicator might take an entirely different view. Generally speaking, though, the FOS do follow CEDRA, i.e. they apply the law as it's set out in the Act, but they also apply their fairness and reasonableness test on top, i.e. they consider in all the circumstances of the case what they think the fair and reasonable result should be. And so they can depart from the strict letter of the law if following it would result in an unfair result for a policyholder in all the circumstances. I think really the most important development here that I need to flag up is the FOS's slightly sneaky approach to what they call unsophisticated commercial insureds. What's going on here is that if the FOS thinks a particular SME business is unsophisticated, they will apply CEDRA rather than the Insurance Act, even though the insured is a business, i.e. even though at law the courts would have applied the Insurance Act rather than CEDRA. And that's really important because often a case can succeed for insurers under the Act, but fail under CEDRA. For example, because it's a non-disclosure case instead of a misrep case. Now, I'm afraid when exactly the FOS will choose to do that is, in my experience, uh, seems to be a bit of a lottery. It doesn't seem to matter that the insured has a broker, for example. My gut feeling is that they're focusing on how often the policyholder is taking out insurance. And so the more businesses and covers they have, the more chance they're sophisticated because the more exposure they have to uh, insurers' systems and regimes that are in place when insurance is taken out. So I'm afraid I can't really give you any hard and fast guidance on this save to say that in SME matters, you and panel need to be considering whether, uh, as a matter of instinct, you or they feel there's a risk of a policyholder being deemed to be on the wrong side of the sliding scale of sophistication, particularly bearing in mind how many uh, related entities the insured has, and so how often the controlling mind or minds, for example, are going to be taking out insurance. I can provide further guidance on this if anyone wants to get in contact with me. Well, that concludes this podcast. It's been a bit of a light speed canter through the main developments, but I hope it's been useful for anyone who's had a listen. 
If you want any more detail, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. My contact details should be available on the podcast and on the DACB website in particular. Thanks very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our latest property lawcast. There'll be more episodes in the DAC Beechcroft lawcast series, so watch this space. If you require any further information, please don't hesitate to contact me on mhomes at dacbeechcroft.com or 0117 918 2072.